What's up, guys? Coach Kate here. So today I really want to talk to you about the significant impact of food when it comes to our mood and our emotions. So if you're on my roster, you've probably heard me say this a million times, but if you are just focusing on calories, then you will lose weight. If you are in a calorie deficit, if you are expending more calories than you're taking in, you will lose weight. I like to think of this as almost being a skinnier but fatter version of yourself versus if you focus on macros, you focus on the percentage of protein, carbohydrates, and fat, you're focusing more on body composition. So that's going to be focusing more on that more muscular, that more lean type body composition. And then if you focus on the quality of foods within macros, so within carbohydrates, fat, and protein, it's going to impact your mood and your energy levels and just your overall mental health. So for example, if we were to take white bread and veggies, both are carbohydrates, both do the exact same thing, right? Every carbohydrate does the same thing, and that's to give you energy. However, there's a significant difference between these two. So white bread is going to be more of a simple carbohydrate versus veggie being more of a complex carbohydrate. So if you think of the outskirts of a grocery store, that's going to be more complex carbohydrate. It's going to be where your veggies are, your brown rice, quinoa, whole grain, everything versus your simple carbohydrates. Think down the grocery store aisles. So chips, crackers, Cheetos, you know, anything that's going to be that kind of quick fix for energy. So when you're looking at simple carbohydrates, it's going to give you that short-term energy. It's going to be really easily digested and it's going to be something that it's not going to be sustained long-term versus a complex carbohydrate. It's kind of the opposite. So it's not going to be something that kicks in immediately, but it's going to give you more long-term sustainable energy. It's going to be a little bit harder to digest, which sounds like a bad thing, but it's not. Essentially, that just means it's going to keep you fuller for longer. So white bread and veggies, again, they're both carbohydrates. They both do the same thing in terms of giving you energy, but it's going to impact how you're feeling, your mood, your energy levels, all the above. White bread is going to be something that, you know, again, it gives you that quick burst of energy, but then that spike in blood glucose, that spike in blood sugar, it's going to come down just as fast. And then that low blood sugar, it's just going to cause you to, to crave more. You're going to want to eat more. It's not going to keep you as full versus vegetables. That's going to be something that's going to be a little bit more long-term when it comes to energy. So you're not going to be thinking about needing to eat immediately after. So when it comes to kind of looking at the two, again, carbohydrates are carbohydrates. They're going to do the exact same thing, but it's going to impact how you are feeling. So in the spirit of Halloween, let's talk about sugar. So guys, sugar cravings. If you're somebody that, you know, feels like they have a sweet tooth or if you're somebody that, you know, you you feel like you can't control yourself if you were to have one candy bar, if you were to have one three musketeers, I say that because it's my favorite candy bar. So if you were to have one three musketeers, you're like, I can't have more, right? You have that sugar craving. It's there's a couple of reasons why this is happening. One, it could be caused by that imbalance in blood glucose levels. So again, when you have something that really spikes your blood sugar, it's going to come down just as fast. And that low blood sugar, it's going to cause you to crave something sweet to bring those levels back up. 
So it's really similar with alcohol. Alcohol causes low blood sugar. So it makes you crave food. So if you are ever, you know, experiencing, if you have a night of like heavy drinking and you're like, I just want chips and guac and all like the crappy kind of foods that are out there, it's because of those uh, low blood glucose levels and it's causing you to crave something more, right? And it's the same when you have like a three musketeers bar because it spikes your blood sugar so fast, insulin is immediately released and then it comes down just as quickly that low blood sugar is going to cause you to keep craving something. So number two, we've talked a little bit about the hunger hormones, leptin and ghrelin. Leptin is the hormone that suppresses your appetite versus ghrelin is like the feed me, I'm hungry hormone for, for hunger. So in a typical uh, normal, like homeostasis, you want these two working really well together because that's going to impact how your metabolism works. So if you have a very healthy metabolism, leptin and ghrelin are working hand in hand. They're working really, really well together. One of the telltale signs that they're not working well together is if you lose your hunger cues. So one of the best examples that I can give you is uh, somebody that's really struggling with an eating disorder, say someone that has anorexia, one of the first things that they lose is going to be their hunger cues. Their basal metabolic rate is going to get so low that they're not necessarily thinking about it. They're not having those hunger cues anymore because they have gone into starvation mode. Their body does not need as much energy in order to, to keep them alive because they are using their energy that's in their body just to kind of keep everything going because they're not intaking as much food. Leptin and ghrelin are not working well together. And so in turn... Instead of increasing your appetite, suppressing ghrelin, it's the complete opposite. And so you just feel less and less hungry. So if you are never having hunger cues, that is a telltale sign that your metabolism is kind of out of whack. And that's step one, what you need to fix. So leptin, again, suppresses appetite. Ghrelin is going to be the feed me, I'm hungry hormone. So research has actually shown that ghrelin levels will increase in response to sugar intake, which then leads to more sugar cravings. So if you have that three musketeers bar, essentially you are now telling your body to raise ghrelin levels and to lower leptin. So you are lowering the hormone that suppresses your appetite and you are raising the hormone that just wants you to eat more and more and more. And what's super interesting about sugar is that sweets, they cause cravings, but it's not because of the taste. So within your stomach, you have cells and you have neurons that that sense the presence of sugary foods independent of their taste. And they send these signals to the brain, which then releases dopamine, which then makes you just want more and more and more. So this pathway, it's so powerful that there have been experiments that you can actually numb the taste and the feeling in the mouth and you can blindfold the person. You give them foods that are sugary and foods that are non-sugary and they end up craving the sugary foods more. So again, guys, this pathway, so freaking powerful that these experiments, they numb the taste and they numb the feeling in the mouth and blindfold them. They have no idea what they're eating, but for whatever reason, they now are craving the sugary foods more than the non. So you have these sensors within your body that make you crave sugar that's independent of the sweet taste. We have these circuits in the body that are, are essentially driving us towards certain behaviors. So you tend to be drawn to particular foods due to a chemical reaction. Even if you can't taste the taste, just the sugar in general, or if it has something that's, you know, maybe sugar that's hidden within it, you can still find yourself craving these foods more and more and not necessarily know why. 
So this is like a huge pet peeve of mine. I hate just the nutritional industry in general when it comes to labeling food because they can get away with so much. They don't necessarily have to claim that sugar is in something, but it can be in a different chemical form. And I said this on, I believe it was the serotonin podcast, um, that sugar can come in multiple different chemical forms. It can be glucose. It can be sucrose. It can be fructose. Um, and I learned this on Nickelodeon when I was like 12, but it's anything that rhymes with gross. And truthfully though, like it sounds so corny, but it really is glucose, fructose, sucrose, whatever. So if you see a label and it says zero grams of sugar, but then you're looking at the ingredients and it has sucrose in it. Yes, that is a form of sugar. It's just a different form of sugar than, um, than like a table sugar. So that way they can get away with still not including it in the sugar category on the label. One of my other biggest pet peeves is when something claims to be 100% organic, it technically only needs to be 95% organic to have the 100% sticker, which makes no sense to me. But essentially, that just means 5% of that can be literally anything and you have no idea, which is terrifying. So anyhow, that's like a whole nother podcast in and of itself. But even if something has a, a hidden sugar in it, and a really common example would be salad dressing. There's a lot of salad dressings out there that do have hidden sugar in them and you feel like you have this craving or this dependency on it or you look forward to eating that particular salad because of that salad dressing. You don't really know why. It's because of that sugar that's in it that's causing this craving. So I want to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about why certain foods make us either feel good or whether they make us feel anxious. So if you're somebody that gets really anxious while you're eating or you get really excited when you're eating, you just kind of tie this emotion into eating. I want to kind of dive into the science of that. So as you approach eating, there is an anxiety or a kind of alertness that goes with it. There's an area within the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is the, think of it as like the control center. Its main purpose is to find just this homeostasis within the brain and the body. So there's this area within the hypothalamus and it's called the lateral hypothalamus. The lateral hypothalamus, it controls feeding. Uh, more specifically, it inhibits feeding. So there's an area of the brain called the locus ceruleus, and it sits back further in the brainstem and it releases norepinephrine. Norepinephrine is adrenaline, right? It makes us feel alert. And so locus ceruleus, it has several functions, but in terms of eating, uh, when we go to a restaurant and we're preparing to eat or we're preparing a meal at home or, you know, whatever the case may be, or preparing food, the locus ceruleus, it, it releases noradrenaline within the brain. It's creating this alertness. And sometimes that can come in the form of excitement and sometimes that can come in the form of anxiety. So if you're someone that struggles to enjoy a meal for whatever reason, it could be because of this heightened sense of stress that's centered around food. A lot of this is already determined by what's currently happening in the body. So if you're already stressed, it could cause more of an anxiety response. If you're excited, it could cause more of an excitement type of response. I'm sure at some point you've heard the expression that you shouldn't eat when you're stressed. Um, a, a huge reason why that's true. You know, one, you don't want to tie food into the emotional response. You don't want to ever eat for an emotional reason. You want to eat for fuel. But it's also hard to regulate your diet and arrange meals amount of times that you're just not stressed. So the best thing that you can do before eating, and it sounds super corny, but truthfully, one of the best things that you can do, especially if you're feeling anxious is to take deep breaths to relax beforehand. And I'm not talking about just normal deep breaths, but one of the best ways 
in terms of reducing your anxiety is to take in a super deep breath and then from there do it again before you release it. So you're really hitting your ceiling. You're not like physically capable of taking in more air. Take in a deep breath and then from there take in one more and then release it. So guys, as we eat, the mechanisms for calmness and feeling like feeling full, they they should start to kick in. And that involves two things. So one, how things taste. Remember, digestion, it's, it starts in the mouth. So we're supposed to properly chew our food. Um, we don't want to drink too many liquids with meals because all of this kind of ties in and helps with digestion. So one, how things taste. And two, the quality of foods. So we're looking for macronutrient-dense foods. You would think that people would stop eating when they're full, but it's actually when our gut tells the brain that it has gotten enough amino acids from food. So remember, amino acids, they are the building block of muscle, but also what the neurochemicals in the brain are made of. So let's kind of dive into some neurochemicals. You guys know I love neuro. Um, So I want to kind of do a, a quick little deep dive into dopamine and serotonin. So if you guys don't remember this, dopamine, there is a podcast on it. Um, Dopamine specifically, it does a nice deep dive into kind of the science of dopamine. Um, It's the the neurochemical that makes you feel good, makes you motivated to get shit done neurotransmitter, right? And it's going to be released when you eat a meal or if you um, enjoy, let's say, like a movie, if you're watching a movie that you really like, if you're, you know, building a community and you're hanging out with friends, like it's it's the motivated, the feel-good kind of neurotransmitter. And it's inhibited when your expectations are better than reality. So for example, tying this back into meals, if you're expecting a meal to be absolutely delicious, like let's say you're going to like this five-star restaurant, you are super stoked, you've been looking for reservations for forever, and you get there, you're freaking excited, and the meal's just like, eh, you know, it's it's not bad, but it's not great either, right? You're just, you're you're so stinking excited about it, and then it doesn't live up to expectations. There's a name for that. And it is the reward prediction error. So if you use this in the context of meals, again, you're expecting this to be terrific. You're placing this higher expectation at the chemical level. So if you don't get as much dopamine as you're expecting, then you actually release less dopamine compared to if you did not have any expectations. So I'm going to say that again and put it in different words. One of my absolute favorite foods in the world, I love, love, love French toast. It is one of my absolute favorites. I am like a firm believer that my dad makes the best French toast in the world. It's one of those like family secret recipes that he won't share even with his daughter. All I know is that it's got like a coffee creamer in it that it's very hard to find. And that's like the extent of the recipe that I know. Absolutely love this French toast, right? It's so freaking good. He only makes it for like very special occasions. So if someone were to tell me, There's a new place that just opened up. It is the best French toast you'll ever eat. It is 10 times better than your dad's, right? That automatically sets that expectation extremely high. If I go to that restaurant and I'm like, I mean, the French toast is good, but it's not as good as what I'm used to. It's not as good as my dad's French toast. I am actually releasing less dopamine than if somebody was just like, hey, there's a new restaurant that opened up. You should try it. They didn't set the expectation up to how good the French toast would be. And I didn't have an expectation of it. It was just, hey, new restaurant. Cool. Let's go try it. I didn't have any expectations as to what I would be eating. Then I am going to get 
less dopamine compared to if I just didn't have any expectations at all. So that's the dopamine aspect of it. Let's kind of switch gears into serotonin. Serotonin is the happy neurotransmitter. And as we talked about last week, neurotransmitters, they are very efficient. They don't want to do just one thing, right? So serotonin, not only is it the happy neurotransmitter, but it helps regulate sleep, appetite, mood, inhibits pain. It helps a lot with GI stuff. Like it's just does a lot with bowel movements. Like it's, it's very, uh, very holistic. What a lot of people don't know is that majority is produced within the GI tract. Uh, the GI tract is lined with 100 millions of nerve cells. So your digestive system, it doesn't just help you digest food, but it also is this, it's a guide to your emotions. The production of these neurotransmitters, it is highly influenced by the, the billions and billions of good bacteria that make up the lining of the intestines and essentially ensure that there's this strong barrier against toxins and bad bacteria that limits inflammation and essentially just helps improve how well you absorb nutrients from your food. And this is also a active neural pathway that travel directly between the gut and the brain. So this is why, like if you're prescribed an antidepressant, let's say Prozac, for example, or something that's an SSRI, something that um, basically increases your serotonin level, one of the most common side effects of them are gut related. So maybe nausea, diarrhea, any type of GI problem, anything like that. And that's because majority is produced in the GI tract. So when the balance of the good and the bad bacteria, when it's disrupted, diseases can occur. So that could be inflammatory bowel disease. It could be asthma. Uh, it could lead to obesity, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, um, and of course, cognitive mood disorders. So studies have actually, they've looked at different types of diet around the world. I don't necessarily like to use the term diet, but like a, a lifestyle of eating for lack of a better term. So if you look at something like the Mediterranean lifestyle diet or the Japanese lifestyle diet, right, compared to the typical like Western American diet, there is actually on average a 37% decrease in depression for those that are eating a more Mediterranean and Japanese diet compared to those eating a Western American. And that's because these diets, they tend to be, you know, higher in vegetables, fruits, unprocessed grains, fish, seafood, and they tend to avoid the more processed foods like refined foods, refined sugars, you know, these foods that contain these chemical additives and ultra processed foods that affect our, our gut environment and increase our risk for disease. One of my favorite parts of coaching is, is when people go on trip for the first time when they join the program. And let's say someone's going abroad and they're, they're just nervous. They're like, I've just been in such a good routine and I don't want to disrupt that. I've been going to the gym every day. I've been meal prepping XYZ. Like I just feel really good. And, you know, let's say you're going to Italy, for example, in Italy, you know, it's just, it's notorious for being very carb heavy, right? Whether it's pizza, pasta, gelato, or bruschetta, um, which is one of my favorite foods, or caprese, you know, basically bruschetta with the bread. Um, very, very carb heavy. And people get very nervous about that. Like, where am I going to get my protein from? Like, how am I going to work out? I don't have access to a gym. So from a workout standpoint, a lot of times when you go on vacation, yes, you might not have access to a gym, but chances are you're going to be getting your steps in for sure. You're going to be walking a lot. From, an, from a nutrition standpoint, the beauty of going abroad is that 
the Western diet does tend to add a lot of chemical additives to preserve food, which is not great for our body. It's just this ultra processed food that we should not really be putting into our bodies versus if you're going to Italy, it's just it's a lot cleaner food. So pasta in Italy versus pasta here, it's just vastly different. It's very clean. It's very it's just pure grains, sauce. And then whatever they kind of mix in between there. But it's not all of this preservatives that they're adding in in there to make the food last as long as possible. It's just a lot cleaner. So because of that, because of the lack of these processed foods and the refined foods, you know, it's just it's causing this 37 percent decrease in depression with the Mediterranean and Japanese diet. So it's really important to just start paying attention to how foods, how they make you feel and not just in the moment, but the next day as well. I'm sure you guys have all heard of the the whole 30 diet. It, it gained traction a couple of years ago and basically swore that if you follow this diet for 30 days, you know, you'd feel so much better. And the whole purpose of it was, again, to follow it for 30 days. And there's nothing special about this diet. It's essentially just like a paleo diet where it's like, you know, eat clean, you know, eat lean, poultry, have a lot of fruits and vegetables, no alcohol. I don't think you can have caffeine either. I can't remember. But essentially, the point of it was just eat really clean. It was paleo, essentially. But then you were supposed to slowly introduce your old habits and your old foods that cause inflammation back in because... Day by day, it's really hard to tell what's causing, you know, fatigue, what's causing you to to feel more moody, what's causing these mood swings, what's causing just that lack of energy. But when you do the whole 30 and then you slowly introduce these old habits back in, you're able to kind of sense like, oh, my God, this is why I feel so lethargic throughout the day. Like you're able to see how the food truly impacted how you're feeling, but also your emotions and your mental health. So some suggestions for a healthier gut and improved mood. Number one, and this kind of goes hand in hand with what we just talked about, eating whole foods and avoid packaged processed foods, right? You want to basically try to not have any unwanted food additives and preservatives that disrupt the healthy bacteria in the gut. So you want to increase fruits and vegetables, you know, eat the rainbow. You want to try to limit fruit juice, which is just essentially full of sugar and it's causing inflammation, eating more fiber. Fiber is going to help kind of control the blood glucose spike. So if you were to have, let's say something that's really high in sugar, but it's also really high in fiber, it helps it not necessarily spike, but be a little bit more of a bell curve. So fruit is a really good example of that. Fruit is technically a simple carbohydrate and it will spike your blood sugar, but because it has so much fiber in it, it turns it into more of a bell curve, right? And so it doesn't spike your blood sugar as much. And because of that, it's not uh, releasing as much insulin, which is then not uh, deterring anyone from losing weight. Because when you have more insulin circulating throughout your body, it will uh, create challenges in terms of losing weight. So eating more fiber is important, including uh, probiotic rich foods such as yogurt or my favorite being kombucha. I drink it all the time. My favorite's Rowdy Mermaid. It's a great brand. It's a nice Colorado brand if you're curious. Um, reducing the sugar intake, right? And especially at breakfast, breakfast being the uh, you're breaking the fast. You're breaking the fast from um, from sleeping. You haven't been eating for eight, 10 hours, right? So one of the worst things you can do for breakfast is have a sugary breakfast because you do not want to break the fast with a, a blood glucose spike. 
So if you're somebody that enjoys fruit for breakfast, it's important to eat that at the end of your meal. So having a nice savory breakfast right off the bat, and then from there, maybe having fruit at the end of the meal. Um, reducing refined carbs. So this is, you know, white bread, pastries, that kind of stuff. Um, reducing sugary drinks, sugar-sweetened beverages, such as soda, energy drinks as well. That's another one of my big pet peeves is energy drinks because they have zeros across the board, zero carbs, zero sugar, zero calories. But the GI, the glycemic index of an energy drink is through the roof. The GI is going to essentially tell you how much it's going to spike your blood sugar levels. So if you are having something with a high GI contact, it's going to spike your blood sugar levels. And that's exactly what energy drinks do. So even though they claim to be zero across the board, it's not possible to be zero across the board while spiking your blood sugar levels, which means it definitely has hidden sugars in it. Um, this next one, guys, eliminating trans fat. So keep in mind, I will never tell someone to eliminate something if I'm not willing to do it. Um, a huge part of our role as coaching is to you know, everything in moderation. We really do try to include foods that you enjoy. So when it comes to fat, um, there's multiple types of fat. I'm going to focus on three. There's unsaturated, saturated, and trans. Unsaturated are the good types of fat. So avocado, olive oil, nuts, things along those lines. Unsaturated fat is going to be more of like the fatty, the bad fat. It's going to be, you know, bacon, sausage, that kind of stuff, or the protein and the fat are kind of um, hand in hand, kind of very similar levels. And then there's trans fat and trans fat is the absolute worst type of fat. It's the fried foods. It's the butter. It's the commercial baked goods. It does just horrendous things to your body. And when it comes to trans fat, again, it's one of those things that you want to try to eliminate as best as possible because it is just absolutely awful for your mental health, but then also your cardiovascular as well. Um, next is to eat a balance of seafood and lean poultry, trying your best to limit, not eliminate, but limit the red meat or maybe even substitute. So if you were to have, you know, maybe instead of bacon, having, um, like a turkey bacon or instead of sausage, having turkey sausage or chicken sausage, something along those lines. And then the final one, replacing all those foods that are causing that inflammation with anti-inflammatory foods. And the top in anti-inflammatory foods are tomatoes, olive oil, leafy green vegetables, nuts, fatty fish such as salmon, fruits, avocado, and my personal favorite being green tea. So guys, hopefully you learned a little bit here about how foods can, uh, can really control our mood and our emotions in general. Again, if you're just focusing on calories, you're focusing on weight loss. If you're focusing on macros, you're focusing on body composition. And then if you focus on the quality of your foods, it's going to be how you feel.